Calling all Swifties and champions of change, Like a Girl Media is rolling out the red carpet for you with our Thrive Like a Girl contest. We're all about celebrating powerful women leaders who inspire us to dream big and push boundaries. And who embodies that spirit more than Taylor Swift herself? Here's your chance to see her live in concert. We're giving away two tickets to Taylor Swift's show in London on Saturday, June 22nd. Imagine being part of the magic, all thanks to Like a Girl Media. Entering is easy. Subscribe, share, and show us which episodes inspired you the most. Visit our website or check our social media for all the details. Don't just dream it, be it. Thrive like a girl and make this summer unforgettable. Contest opens globally. Voidware prohibited. Must be 18 or older to enter. No purchase necessary. Subscribe and share with hashtag thrive like a girl and tag us at like a girl underscore media for entry. Unlimited entries means unlimited chances. Winner chosen at random after contest closes May 20th, 2024. We'll be notified via DM. Make sure your profiles are not private. Check full rules on our site. This is your shot to see Taylor Swift live. Don't miss it. Hey there, welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. My name is Joy Rios. I'm the show's host. And here we talk about a 30,000 piece puzzle of healthcare and health IT and all of the different pieces that go into it. We bring on guests that are experts. And I am very happy to share today with our guest, Allison Greenberg. Allison, can you take a moment to introduce yourself and share with our audience your piece in the healthcare landscape? Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Joy. I'm really excited to be here. My name is Allison Greenberg. I'm co-founder and CEO of Ruth Health. And Ruth Health is a virtual clinic for prenatal and postpartum patients. We serve patients nationwide and even ex-US. And we basically serve as a wraparound clinic and resource, a set of evidence-based resources from blogs to self-guided video series that supplements your doctor. So we don't replace the OBGYN. We fill in the gaps between the OBGYN the midwife, if you have one, the doula, if you have one, and the many other providers that sort of make up the constellation of maternal care. So our services include pre and post body work, which is pelvic floor training our way. We do C-section recovery, lactation support. We also have doulas. You can text message unlimited 24-7. That's called Ask a Doula. And we have a full series of evidence-based videos called Ready by Ruth Health, which includes baby wearing 101, breastfeeding 101, and even our beloved, we call it internally sex ed, but it's about pregnancy and intimacy and how to safely and comfortably have sex both when you're pregnant and after baby comes. That's really just me in the business in a nutshell, but I'm happy to give you more background on myself if you need it. Yeah, I would love to know how did you start and how did you get into like how did you find this path? This path found me in a lot of ways. And that's because I was born into women's health. My mom is and was an OBGYN from well before I was born. She had been working as a physician in the Philly area where I grew up. And she experienced a good deal of misogyny and sexism in her early career. You know, I won't reveal her age, but she's on the older side of uh, parents for somebody my age. And that meant that she was one of the only women working in some of the first practices where she was employed after residency. So eventually she got fed up and she started her own practice called Women Care. And 
that practice was all female providers. And that was something really new and different in obstetrics and gynecology in the 80s. So now we know lots of practices, like even here in New York City, I know of at least 10, including one called Maiden Lane, that are primarily, if not all, female providers. This was really different at the time. And so growing up around her practice and actually working in it as, you know, unsanctioned child labor, I really became interested and aware of the intricacies of women's health from a young age. I went on to start a career after college in healthcare and brand strategy. I worked for big Madison Avenue agencies. I also worked as a consultant independently for clients like Edwards Life Sciences, Stryker, Merck, Pfizer, CVS Health. And after really seeing inside the onion of healthcare, I took a step back and started my first company in conversational AI only to come right back to healthcare and realize, you know, I could build chatbots and voice experiences for brands, but that wasn't going to move the needle for humanity. And so my co-founder, Audrey Wu, and I met in that field of conversational AI, and we started Ruth Health with the mission to improve access, affordability, and really to introduce joy into maternal health, which today is a massive disaster in the US. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. I have, from what you just said, about seven questions. <laughs> and I guess I will start with... Like thinking about your app from a young age, you must have had a really different insight into sex education, understanding of your body and basically what gets taught to patients on a general basis from the experience with your mom. Have you brought that in and, and how have you seen what we teach patients and, and women and girls about their body, you know, evolve over the years? Yeah, that's a great question, Joy. I mean, the first thing I'll say, I forgot to say earlier is my mom, Dr. Vivian Greenberg, is our chief medical officer at Ruth Health. So I'm very lucky that I actually get to work alongside her now and not just carry on her legacy. She informs everything we do as a board-certified ACOG OBGYN. She oversees every single use case and all of the products we create. But I will not say that being the child of an OBGYN cures all the ills of society. And um, I didn't get a sex talk as a kid. You know, my mom was busy. She was busy delivering babies and being on call. She didn't have time to do stuff like that necessarily. So I learned what sex was from an older cousin at the beach when I was five or six years old. That's not how people should learn what sex is. <laughs> Don't look at me as an example. But I think Growing up in a doctor household, anybody who had a healthcare provider for a parent might feel this way. Bodies were normalized and healthcare issues were normalized. And that was a huge privilege. There are so many privileges that come with having a doctor for a parent, and especially an OBGYN for a parent. But I meet people, adults today all the time who were shamed for having a body at home. And I can't think of anything sadder because we all have a body. We all have parts to that body. And whether it's your elbow or your vulva, you should know what those parts are and how they work. And um, I didn't get explicit conversations at home about these things, but you know, I was talking to my mom about hysterectomies and colposcopies and C-sections. 
since I can remember. And that is a level of like implicit knowledge that I just don't think I would have had I not grown up in her home. I mean, absolutely not. Like on the, to contrast to that experience, like I was somebody that did not want to get my period. And I was super scared and ashamed when it finally came. And I don't think I talked to my mom. I wanted to hide it. I hid it for like three months because I didn't want to talk about it. And it really just was an accident that it ended up happening. I think she was hinting like, oh, we're going to be talking about some stuff soon because you're getting to a certain age. But it was certainly not educational in the same way that you're talking about. I mean, it's your story is... I'm sorry that you went through that. It's just all too common. I wasn't educated about my period either. And I was terrified when it arrived. So again, there's checks and balances in the experience that I had. But... I was scared of tampons and I didn't know how to insert one. And I had to learn from an American girl book. So yeah, again, having a healthcare provider at home, it destigmatizes things and it exposes you to a lot. But what we're talking about is the failure of the American education system. Yeah, it's much bigger. Exactly. Sex ed was taught to me an excellent independent school in the Philadelphia area by an art teacher. And I'm sorry, but that's just not enough. It's not good enough. No. So how are you? Okay. So with Ruth Health, you're there now. You're supporting moms at different stages. Does somebody have to be a mom or want to be a mom to be in your care? Well, we like to say birthing people as just a more inclusive term. Sometimes we say moms too. The majority of our patients, the vast majority are either a birthing person. They are actively pregnant. They are 50, up to 15, even 20 years postpartum. But we say postpartum is the rest of your life. So they have had a child, a miscarriage or a loss and they are coming to us as a result of that. But it's an interesting question because we actually do see patients who are from the pre to post-menopause stage of life too. Our pre and post body work, again, it is pelvic floor and core training for pre and postpartum bodies. Postpartum bodies can be menopausal or postmenopausal. And pelvic floor work is just so important for everyone. Every person can benefit from doing preventative and treatment in terms of pelvic floor care. But we also do have uh, women and, and vulva owning people as patients who are not pregnant and never have been. Those are, you know, fewer and further between than the pregnancy and postpartum cases, but those folks tend to have a condition like vulvodynia, vaginismus. They may experience painful sex or have pain in the vulva or around the vulva. And doing pelvic floor work with us can be a great way for them to treat the condition. And all the care we do is virtual. It's all 100% virtual care done one-on-one via HIPAA-compliant Zoom, just like this. So we can do it with you on your time, in your home or office. We've even done it in hotel rooms. We've done it in backyards. So that accessibility is why we're applicable for so many different use cases with pregnancy and postpartum being the focus. Well, first of all, thank you for helping me transition my language to be more inclusive. I appreciate that. Of course. Yeah. And second, well, you're t- you're a companion to a lot of like OBGYNs. The, can we talk about the need for that? Because there's clearly a need for as much care as we can get for 
birthing people. Absolutely. I mean, the biggest stat I like to cite is is a big one. It is it is a striking statistic that 83% of pregnancies, and that doesn't mean vaginal birth or C-section, it doesn't actually imply that there is a live birth either. 83% of pregnancies, including miscarriage and loss, C-section and vaginal birth, result in some form of pelvic floor dysfunction. So when you think about your mom, your aunt, your grandma, those women and birthing people in your life who joked about peeing in their pants when they laughed or got on a trampoline with a kid and accidentally wet themselves. If you think about the friends who've disclosed that sex is painful for them or that they feel discomfort standing for long periods of time, even sitting for long periods of time after having a baby. These are the signs and symptoms of pelvic floor dysfunction. And that's why we built our first product, which used to be called pelvic floor training and recovery. And now we loop it into pre and post body work because we think holistically. So that is very much something we care about because it affects the majority. And yet so few are talking about it. And worse, insurance almost never covers pelvic floor physical therapy. So when you go to an in-person pelvic floor physical therapist in a major city in the U.S., you're paying between $250 and $380 just for an intake session. Wow. Our sessions, intake plus first session, so your first two sessions, $100. Okay, so that brings up a question. So how do you guys get paid? Is it, is it Are you covered by insurance at all or is it completely out of pocket for patients? Yeah, so for our direct-to-consumer patients, we're out of pocket or we accept HSA, FSA. We also can create a super bill. And so some people do actually get coverage, especially for our lactation support. That's something that if you have a really great insurance policy may have been covered for you had you seen an in-person lactation consultant. So we are in some cases able to get coverage there. But Ruth Health is not an insurance covered resource for a reason. And that's going back to what I mentioned about pelvic floor issues and how insurance rarely covers them anyway. In addition to doulas, we have an amazing product called Ask a Doula, which is unlimited 24-7 access to a doula via text message. It's only $15 a month and your first week is free. And this has been a resource... Thank you. It's been a resource for hundreds and hundreds of birthing people, but also for non-birthing partners, dads, boyfriends, non-birthing female partners, even your mom or your sister, if they are the person going along in the childbearing journey with you, everyone deserves access to a doula. And doulas, again, address a massive need because while doulas are only utilized by, it's estimated, we don't know exactly, probably about 2 to 4% of births in the US, they are evidence-based. They save lives. And we know that there's limited research, but studies have shown that continuous support from a doula from pregnancy through postpartum is associated with a 31% decrease in negative childbirth and postpartum experiences. And that means you're less anxious less depressed. You have more confidence with your baby. You're more satisfied with your partner. You're more likely to successfully breastfeed. And there's so many other ways that doulas help in terms of reducing the chance of preeclampsia, preterm birth, low five APGAR scores for baby. In short, every birthing person deserves and should have a doula. And so that's something that we provide both direct to consumer and B2B all of our services are both direct-to-consumer and B2B. And when we go B2B, we're either an employee benefit covered by an employer 100%, or we work with hospitals, healthcare systems, clinics, and payers 
And we have a few really exciting pilots launching this summer with hospitals and clinics in New York, Washington, and California. I mean, I'm really impressed by your services, but I'm also kind of aghast at like when we look at the statistics around maternal mortality and morbidity and like the needs that are clearly like out there for birthing people and everything around that whole conversation and like the lack of what is actually supported by the system. And like when we were seeing like cuts to Medicaid and to your point of these services that are very, very powerful and needed, very needed. And then we just, they're not included in services. Do you have any opinion as to why that is and also what we can do about it. And I know that that's a loaded question, but I just feel like you're close to it. And I would love to hear, you know, just you go off. (laughs) Be careful what you wish for, Joy. I, I could talk about this for hours. I mean, thank you for asking that question because I think all too often the stats on maternal mortality and severe maternal morbidity are discussed in a very doom and gloom way. These stats also can't be discussed without acknowledging the racial disparities and the fact that Black women in America die at 2.6 times higher rate than white women like me. Here in New York City, Black birthing people are dying at 8 to 12 times higher rates than white women, right? So this is a maternal health crisis, but it is also a specifically Black maternal health crisis And it is more complex than your average healthcare question, which is complex. You know that as well as I do. So I think when it comes to like what's wrong, well, we know that the leading causes of maternal death are hemorrhage, eclampsia, and preeclampsia. There's complications with gestational diabetes. There's also scarily high rates of maternal suicide and murder. So those are two things that I don't think are talked about enough when we talk about the death rates. We don't we're not really acknowledging those two last things that you just said. I feel like people are afraid to say it out loud, but it's happening. Absolutely. And we can't fear this crisis. Fear is something that paralyzes people, and as a nation, we have been paralyzed. For 3 years the Momnibus Act has gone past the, the House floor and For three years, three times on the House floor, it hasn't passed. I actually just wrote an op-ed in Fortune magazine about this. And I'm really passionate about maternal health equity because we have seen maternal deaths almost double in the last three years. Yeah. And it's not about economy. We have to let that sink in. It's more than just... well. It's not a class thing, right? Because there's even when you talk about black and brown people at risk, even folks that are at the high, the highest of their careers, and you know that they're doing just fine, like are still having the same issues, like like the yes. the track athlete who just passed away. Yeah. So Tori Bowie was an incredible athlete, an Olympian, and at one point the fastest woman on earth. It's really important for us to remember her legacy and to acknowledge the human before we talk about the statistics, because that human is one of three members of her Olympic relay team, all Black women who experienced complications or mortality in the births of their children. So to your point, this is not necessarily a class issue. The statistics show that it is a racial segregation of of outcomes issue. I will say that we have a lot of data on the fact that income maps to outcomes. 
And so income is critical. And those who are underserved and underprivileged are definitely dying at higher rates, are definitely experiencing worse outcomes. But yeah, Tori Bowie was 32 had an incredible career, had won a full athletic scholarship, and should not have died at home at eight months pregnant and lost her daughter in the process. These are issues that come from systematic racism, misogyny, medical racism specifically, incredible amounts of bias and ignorance of women and their pain, and outdated medical practices. Our system of prenatal care in the U.S. is extremely outdated, needs to be redesigned, rethought through. Our payers and the formularies with which we determine what's covered and what's not, which whether we like it or not, is how we decide which care to access. Those need to be completely redesigned. And then most importantly, the value chain screws everyone. And people will continue dying in this crisis until the value chain changes, which requires health insurance companies to prioritize human life over profits. And that will never happen in America. And those are powerful words. I So I look at value-based care and I've spent an, a stupid amount of time looking at clinical quality measures and what it is we say that we're measuring and that we care about and we want to make improvements on as a society. And I can't believe the lack of quality measures that there are when it comes to maternal health. And it's especially considering how the statistics that we hear over and over and over again. And if we say measure what matters so that you can actually look at improvement, why are we not measuring this? And why are there not, you know, 10, 15, 30 different quality measures that OBGYNs could be putting to use? And honestly, it's what I see is that it's based on Medicare. So like if Medicare is driving it, then you're looking at a population of 65 and older. And so, you know, people of birthing age don't really fit into what they care about. There's other things that get to the top of that list. But I feel like we need a whole rewrite. Like it's time. Absolutely. Yeah. A rewrite is, I think, the least that we could do. But I want to acknowledge, first of all, there's people way smarter than I am about this. There are healthcare economists, statisticians, data scientists who have a deeper grasp on what's going on here. From my high-level perspective as the CEO of a maternal health tech company, but also as somebody who used to deal with conversational AIs and reams of data, we're producing reams of data. At Ruth Health, we do prioritize HIPAA-compliant, safe, secure storage of that data, and we collect as much of it as humanly possible. And that's data on pre-existing conditions, existing conditions, emotional challenges, behavioral challenges. We're also collecting massive amounts of conversational data through both our one-on-one -on -one sessions and our text message conversations with Ask Adula. All of that data is overwhelming when it comes to analyzing it the right way. So if my early stage startup has to build a comprehensive strategy and has an overwhelming amount of data, imagine how much data United Healthcare has, right? And we went through the United Healthcare Accelerator powered by Techstars. I've seen a little bit under the hood there and I've worked with some wonderful people at United Healthcare. They have more data than they know what to do with it. And they have really sophisticated people parsing that data. So I like to acknowledge that that more data is not good. It's better data and better analytics that's good. And that is a very hard ask, especially when the whole healthcare system is running on empty. 
like COVID-19 burned out so many providers, especially in maternal health. It also burned out the people working behind the scenes at the payers who were scrambling to change the entire system to fit a pandemic. Well, now we have another pandemic and it's maternal death. And so with the shortages of labor, with the overabundance of data and not enough intelligent assessment of it, I think we need a reckoning. And I think to your point, we need really thoughtful assessment of what the true metrics for success are. And in our case, we know what those metrics for success are. We know intimately what we want to measure when we run our hospital and clinical pilots. And we're measuring success in a way that's very different from hospitals and payers. And we're excited about that. How do you measure success? We start with some of the basics. And then we kind of have our own secret sauce, some of which I I can discuss and some of which I can't. But I mean, at a base level, hospitals and healthcare systems need people coming through the door to make money. But we have this issue in America where maternity units are closing across the country. And about 217 labor and delivery units have closed in the last like 10, 12 years. Wow. That's tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of patients who now don't have access to care. So how do we fix that problem? Well, they need volume. They need more births per month so that they can bill insurance so that they can have enough money to continue to support labor and delivery. Getting your births per month up as a hospital is an extremely tough challenge, but one place to start is with satisfaction and joy and accessible, affordable care, but also joy have always been at the core of what we do at Ruth Health. Maternal health is not a joyful thing. Nobody finds going to the OBGYN joyful. What if your experiences with care were fun, informative, no holds barred? We always say there's no such thing as TMI, which is why we're talking about sex and pregnancy and the fact that no, you will not poke the baby in the head with your partner's penis. So yeah, this is one way to do it. And that joy is not just a mushy thing. It becomes tangible when you measure customer satisfaction or CSAT scores, NPS scores. You know, I I walk into hospitals and clinics, they don't know what an NPS is. So we're borrowing from tech and we're bringing it into healthcare and we're saying you need an NPS. What's an NPS? Yeah, it's a net promoter score and it's a basic score used by lots of companies, you know, Apple famously has a very high NPS score. It's a customer experience metric and it measures the loyalty of your customers. Would you recommend this service, hospital, provider, program to a friend? And our NPS score at Ruth Health is 94 out of 100. So we're really proud of that. And I think that's one of the reasons why larger healthcare institutions want to work with us because their NPS on average is in the 50s. Oh, I bet. Are you showing it to them because they don't know to even look at it essentially? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's an industry-wide, like healthcare as an industry overall in terms of like hospitals, medical devices. There's some aggregate score and I can't remember who's, who actually generated it, but it was in the 50s. So I do have to educate people all the time, whether they're a chief medical officer of a hospital or the chief of OBGYN. That's oftentimes the people we're working with. Yeah. They had no idea that these stats exist. And those are really important to us along with maternal mortality and morbidity uh, stats, everything from rates of preeclampsia to preterm birth, whether or not there was a C-section, whether or not the birth was medicated, length of birth, and you know, just crucial, crucial is overall satisfaction of the birthing person with hospital, provider, 
and the labor and delivery experience, including any wraparound care. You touched on it earlier, the conversational AI. And so I'm curious about how you are using that because you've had experienced it in the past. How is it being used within Ruth Health? And also, wouldn't this be AI be a great use case for all of the data that is being produced right now of like, hey, if we're going to put it to work, that might be a great area to focus on. Absolutely. I mean, it's always kind of floored me that more in-person healthcare institutions aren't collecting conversational data. You can put a mic in the ceiling and you can ask your patients for consent. We ask all of our patients for consent to record their one-on-one sessions and to collect that conversational data from text message experiences. And in company history, we just had our, our two-year anniversary, or we're coming up on our two-year anniversary of revenue-generating care in July. We've only had two patients ever ask that their session not be recorded. So that actually shocks me. Like I grew up in conversational AI starting in about 2017 when people were scared of Alexa and G Assistant and they didn't want them in their homes because they didn't want to be listened to. They didn't want their data being harvested. I think we're coming to a place as a human race where we know our phones are listening to us. We know that Zoom is listening to us right now. And we know that when we walk into a CVS or a Walgreens, there's probably listening devices being used too. So I think finally people are coming to terms with the fact that this can be a good thing. Conversational data should be collected by healthcare institutions because it can be analyzed for word frequency, for sentiment analysis. It gives us an idea of what the true problems are because what people say is not necessarily what the healthcare institution hears. And we need to listen more closely. With AIs, we can do that. Okay, now I'm going to nerd out on something. So if you're capturing those conversations that are happening between a patient and their doctor or whoever's in the room, how it's does not that... not a doctor, but yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. How does that get into the electronic health record? Like, is it, It's not structured data. It'd be like a generic note, right? Yeah. I mean, we have a custom software platform. We built our backend hub from scratch and we integrate conversational data into their EHR. It's all collected and stored in the same place. It's never ever released to anyone and we will never ever sell individuals data but we do corpus analysis and we can analyze the entire set of de-anonymized data so we strip PII away like if you joy are one of our patients if you're doing pre and post body work with us or if you're texting your doula through ask a doula we would strip away all of your private information and we would analyze six months of conversation with you and then we can say, well, it looks like Joy has brought up uh, hand cramps over and over again, but we're mm -hmm. treating her pelvic floor and her core. And what's going on there? Well, maybe you have mommy thumb, which is a condition of the hand that is actually associated with breastfeeding and comes oftentimes in a pair with a pelvic floor issue. We can also do corpus-wide analysis and say of all of our patients, we are hearing a lot of challenges with postpartum depression. We are hearing a lot of challenges with intimate partner issues or the word, you name it. The word doula has come up a ton, but not all of these people are engaging with a doula. So maybe they're what we call doula curious. How do we build new products, services, blog posts, 
TikTok videos and educational resources so that people who are doula curious know what a doula is, how to engage with one and what it can do for them. All of that sounds fascinating. Like I can't even imagine what you're sitting on as far as insights into people's like just what concerns them? What is keeping them up at night? And you know, what problems are they dealing with on a regular basis? But I also curious about like, how can that information now influence the system that so badly needs to be changed? And maybe that comes from lobbying. Maybe that just comes from educational material. What do you think? I think it starts with research and You probably know this, but women were not required to be included in clinical trials until 1993. Mm -hmm. That's after I was born. Okay. Mm -hmm. So first of all, the gendered research gap is massive. My friend Priyanka Jane over at Evie Bio created Equal Research Day, and that was just celebrated this past month. There's a lot of work being done in the women's health and digital health space on closing the research gap, but it will take decades. And there is no quick fix for this problem. Research takes time. We're actually doing our first ever IRB study at Ruth Health right now. It takes time. You need to structure it correctly. You need to build your research questions intelligently. You need to collect data intelligently. And then you need to analyze it well. And on top of all of that, we need statistically significant sample sizes because if you've ever gone into PubMed or looked for any data on birthing people, on pregnant people, on recently postpartum people, the N, I'm just endlessly frustrated by this. The N is usually like 30. Are you serious? What are we supposed to do with 30? That's not statistically significant. That's That's not causal. It's a correlation at best. So we need more research to understand what the problems truly are. And I would love to do like large longitudinal studies that include lots of conversational data because all of our metrics for success need to be layered on top of the conversational trends and the sentiment analysis, right? If we're looking at rates of prenatal preeclampsia, preterm birth, time in labor, if we're looking at those CSAT and NPS scores, if we're looking at the rate of unplanned interventions or overall satisfaction with a hospital, there's The quantitative, the qualitative is in the conversation. And that's what we need to understand and fix this maternal health crisis. I'm a social scientist by training and and I studied anthropology in school and have performed many ethnographies. The qualitative has to be alongside the quantitative and we don't have either right now. Okay, how can we support you? How can (laughs) I and audience members, like how can people rally around because you're on a mission and doing good things and how would you like to receive support? Thank you for asking. And there's two ways that I'd like to receive support. The first way is for people to get educated, learn about the maternal health crisis in the U.S., learn about why systems of care are not serving people and look at examples across the the world where we don't have these crises. Look at France and Saudi Arabia where pelvic floor services are free of charge and included in in your single-payer healthcare. Look at Northern Europe where maternal mortality rates are better. And then look around you at the people who have the capacity for change. Because when we're talking about system-wide change, My call has always been for key players in the big institutions, healthcare, government, massive nonprofits, massive funders. They need to break out of those massive institutions. They need to take their knowledge and their funding and lend a hand to companies like mine 
to organizations like Every Mother Counts, to the many nonprofits, Black Mamas Matter, the Black Maternal Health uh, Conference hosted at Tufts, the Mother Lab at Tufts Medical School, which is doing incredible work in terms of research. We need to fund people like Kimberly Seals Allers and her Earth app which is a Yelp-like ratings platform that enables us to rate our providers so that Black and Brown women specifically can see which providers exhibit medical racism and which ones don't. We need investment from more foundations, angel investors, venture capitalists, like our amazing investors, especially our lead investors at Giant Ventures, who are purpose-driven and system-minded. They need to be funding the change, the research, the startups, the nonprofits. Because that's where the power is right now. The power is not in the big entities. It's not in government. It's not in health insurance. It's not in hospitals. That's how we got into this mess in the first place. So I think we're really at a turning point where this will only get worse if we don't organize as a nation, if we don't show our governments, our leaders, state, federal, local, that this is important to us. And then, you know, this is really the cry for help, not just the call to action. We need the wealthiest, high net worth individuals, foundations, and angel investors in America to say enough is enough. No more maternal deaths. We're going to put our money where our mouth is. When we say we care about America, when we say we care about women's health, when we say we care about babies, right? Because Tori Bowie died in childbirth and so did her eight-month gestational age daughter. Put your money into maternal health. The research, the technology... The many peers of mine who are are building solutions in this space. And that is more powerful than any of the value-based care programs that payers supposedly are putting into action right now. They're just too slow. It's not enough. If what about okay, on the other side of things, what about as an individual or somebody who is working from a small business perspective, can they also get involved in support? Absolutely. They can angel invest in Ruth Health. Or they can go to the many companies in our space that are also doing amazing work, whether it's Elovu or Vesa Watch, Luna Joy for maternal mental health, whether it is one of the many amazing nonprofits, abortion funds, Every Mother Counts, like I said, uh, Black Mamas Matter, Melanated Moms. Donate. That is one way that an individual can have an impact. Donate or invest in a startup that you believe is the change you want to see in the world. But also... Become a healthcare advocate, become your own health advocate, and then learn how to do that for others. If you have a friend who's pregnant for the first time and has never been through this process, and you have one shred of knowledge about how the healthcare system works, which I imagine a lot of your listeners do because they're they're interested in healthcare, you need to share and spread that knowledge because I have dozens and dozens of friends who use me as a point of contact. They do the same for our chief experience officer, Kimberly. They do the same with our lead doula, Ray. We exist and work every single day in the birthing space and we have knowledge that other people don't. So you need to ask people in this space to share that knowledge. And if you have the knowledge, you need to pass it along too, because that is how we start to look at the healthcare system as a negotiation and not as a grim reality. Every healthcare bill, every healthcare decision is negotiable. Allison, I just want to say thank you for all the work that you're doing because it is so important and the world needs more people like you. And I invite all of our listeners to follow your advice and support. If you know any wealthy donors or philanthropists that you have influence over, you know, tap on their shoulder and tell them that we need their help. 
And if our listeners want to follow or connect or get in touch with you, do you have a way for them to do so? Of course. Yeah. And I should have mentioned the other way you can help is refer your friends, family, and loved ones to Ruth Health. We'd love to support anyone you know and love. You can find us on all socials at Ruth Health, R-U-T-H, like Ruth Bader Ginsburg. That's who we're named for. Ruth Health Co., and you can find us at ruthhealth.com. You can also reach out to me, Allison Greenberg, on LinkedIn anytime. I love talking about maternal health. I love talking to people who want to help but don't know how. There are so many resources out there. And like I said, even if you are just one individual and you don't know lots of high net worth individuals, you can send a letter to your congressperson about the momnibus. You can volunteer with an abortion clinic as a, an escort and you can spread the word about things like pelvic floor resources, about doulas, and really make a difference in your family, among your friends, and in your community. Thank you so much. Thanks, Joy. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about us or this guest by going to our website or visiting us on any of the socials with the handle hit like a girl pod. Thanks again. See you soon. Again, thank you so much for listening to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. I am truly grateful for you, and I'm wondering if you could do me a quick favor. Would you be willing to follow or subscribe to this podcast, or maybe leave us a rating or review? Or if you're feeling extra generous, would you share this episode on your Instagram stories or with a friend? All those things help us podcasters out so much. I'm the show's host, Joy Rios, and I'll see you next time.